Around this time every year, at the seminary, we would be hosting a dinner auction. And like any other dinner auction, there were many different items that you could bid on. So many different things to choose from. One of the things that was often most coveted, however, was one that was very unique. It was a dinner at the seminary. Now, this wasn't just any dinner like we would have normally, but this was a dinner prepared by seminarians. And if you can imagine for yourselves a bunch of college-age men cooking an eight-course meal, that's about what it was like. Being able to visit the seminary and being able to have a very fine, di fi very fine dinner. And while that was the case, that was a beautiful meal to behold, and it's something that is very common to us. Now, certainly that meal might have been important amongst others, but there are so many that we take part in, so many different celebrations, so many different things that we like to take part in, so many banquets. And yet, that is a constant theme that is present in the first reading and then the gospel today. This theme of banquets, of feasts, what is this all about? Why are we so focused on eating at this moment? What is this designed to tell us, and what is it convicting us to do today? To begin to answer that question, we should go on to the book of the prophet Isaiah, our first reading. We're told that on the Lord's mountain there are many things that are happening, but one of the first is that there is this feast and banquet being prepared, a feast of juicy and rich foods and of choicest wines, of pure and choice wine. And so Isaiah knows very well his audience, and he knows very well how to engage them. At this point in time, he's speaking to them in their state of being in exile. So they are very much hopeless, they're very much discouraged, but he wants to tell them about the future and what that holds. So he's using this image to capture their attention. But once he's drawn that attention in, he starts to tell them even more, that this is about so much more than just a feast, but it's rather about these different things that are going to happen, that there will be a veil amongst the nations will be destroyed, that death will be no more, that tears will be wiped away from eyes, and so many things will happen on the Lord's mountain. And what's more, he, there is this cry that will invoke, that will come forth, that will be elicited, and it will say, behold our God to whom we come to save us. And indeed, that call is responded to. But nonetheless, as Isaiah is speaking to the people, he's reminding them that they are all going to be invited to this very important moment of celebration, one that is far beyond their imagination, but one that is definitely worth their time. We continue on and we hear from St. Paul in his letter to the Philippians, and actually this is the conclusion and the closing of the letter, getting very close to it, because we hear that he's starting to give just a few more parting thoughts. But nonetheless, he's speaking to the church in Philippi, and he's reminding them of all of the different things that he has done, or the different ways that he has learned to minister, even in different circumstances. So he's telling them that he has learned how to serve in humble circumstances, or in moments of abundance, moments of richer or poorer, all of these different moments or circumstances that he's found himself in. He's learned how to minister through them all. Now, in human nature, we might say that he has just learned how to have endurance, how to have firm resolve, how he's learned that to have that strength that he needs to minister effectively. But there's much more to the picture, because he comes to this simple verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That that is the simple principle that undergirds everything. He's reminding them that it is not on his own power that he's learned to minister or to go forward and to do what he needs to do effectively, but rather he's learned to rely on the Lord fully, and therefore because of that reliance, he has always found himself successful. 
But he tells the church in Philippi that as they've been concerned for him and for his well-being, that he is grateful for that, but at the same time, because of God, they need not worry. And he often uses himself as an example, but an example to teach. And he does the very same thing here. Because he uses this example to tell the church in Philippi that as he has done all things through Christ, so too they should do all things through Christ. So he's telling them to do all those things and for everything that it should be directed to the glory of God the Father. So indeed, he has done all things. He's done everything, whether, whatever circumstance he found himself in, but it's only through Christ, and therefore the church in Philippi and all of the Philippians should do the exact same. Then finally, we move on to the gospel and the third parable that we've heard that is addressed to the chief priests and the elders. So Jesus has been really tightening down and clamping down on the chief priests and the elders because they have often become so corrupt and so jaded that they are not listening to Jesus and what he has to say any longer. And so this is another indictment. This is a moment of conviction. He's trying to get their attention and get them to convert their hearts because they've become so hardened. But nonetheless, he goes into this third parable. So we're told that there was a king that was hosting a wedding banquet for his son. He sent out his servants to summon those that were invited, but they refused. They simply heard the servants what they were saying, and they said, no, I won't do that today. And then they moved on. And then he sent the servants back out again, that he hasn't give up, he's very persistent, but he sends them out with even more words of encouragement. Tell them that the feast is ready, I've slaughtered all the animals, and that everything is ready, come to the feast. And many ignore this invitation yet again. That there are some that simply go back to their farm, there are some that go back to their businesses or their place of work, and then there are a few that decide that they are so depraved that they're going to mistreat and even kill the servants that were there that came to give them the good news. So what does the king do? In a fit of rage, he turns and he goes, he burns that entire city to the ground, he puts those murderers to the sword, and then he comes back and he thinks to himself, who am I going to have attend this wedding banquet? So he decides to himself, he sends out his servants, they go out to the hills, the countryside, and the streets, and they find everyone there to invite to the wedding feast until the hall is finally full. And so at that moment, the king comes through, he looks and sees who has been summoned to this wedding feast, and he finds this one man that is not in a wedding garment. And he says, why have you not been dressed in a wedding garment? Why are you not found in one? He's reduced to silence, he has nothing to say, he has no excuse. And therefore the king has him tied and thrown out into the darkness where there's wailing and grinding of teeth. And then Jesus says these sharp words, then you are invited but few are chosen. Many are invited, few are chosen. This message is one that is piercing. This message should be one of conviction that even though the chief priests and the elders at that time largely don't listen, nonetheless, this is him warning them and trying to get them to understand that they need to convert, they need to be repentant, they need to turn their hearts. But what is it saying for us? What about this theme of feasting and of banquets? Well, first, we need to realize that when we come to the book of the prophet Isaiah, that this is an invitation not just to any generic feast, not just to many different dinners that we could go to, but instead is an invitation to the kingdom of heaven. That this, in fact, is the Lord's mountain, that this is symbolic not just for the nation of Israel, but for each and every one of us. It tells us about how we are being invited to that place where there is no more death, no more tears, that the veil will be removed and we will see God clearly face to face. 
So in fact, this is the first important point, and one that we might often neglect or forget about, but we are fundamentally called to go to the kingdom of heaven. And notice the imagery that, in fact, whenever it tells us about those choice foods and wines, it's not just saying that to get us hungry or thirsty, but instead it's telling us every single desire that is on your heart right here, right now, will be fulfilled. Everything that you've ever desired in this life, all of those longings that are deep within our souls, will be filled and overfilled to abundance. So that is the kingdom of heaven. That is the place where, we, and the only place where we will truly find satisfaction. But the good news is we are all called to partake in that feast. So that is the first point. But the second one makes it a little harder. The kingdom of heaven isn't just something we can take for granted. The kingdom of heaven is something that we have to strive for, to work for, to hear the invitation and respond, because we have to understand exactly what this parable is saying. It is not just directed at a group of people and elites so long ago, but it's directed at us. We need to understand, because the different parties of people involved are right here. Because the servants are the prophets, the first set that are sent out. They are sent out to tell the good news, how all are invited into relationship with the Lord their God, and even invited into the halls of heaven. And so many of them just simply refuse. They hear the message, they say, not for me, and then walk away. And then there's the second group of servants, the disciples. They too are sent out to tell the good news, that the feast is ready, that the sacrifice has been made, that they should come to that feast. And many ignore that invitation as well. They were told many go to their farm or some go to their businesses. We could even think of it in more modern terms. That many go to the sports events. Many have other social obligations. They can't be bothered. They've got different things to do. They've got a lot that's taking their attention. Therefore, they don't need to take their time. But then we hear about these groups that are martyred too, because we hear that some of these servants are in fact killed for their faith and for their message, but nonetheless, these are the martyrs that we still celebrate and venerate to this day, that they went forward and they sacrificed their life to give to that mission and that message, but still they didn't listen. So the Lord, he goes in and he destroys that city. And there's a couple of ways that we can understand this, that we could look at the Jewish or the destruction of the city of Jerusalem at that point in time, and we could see it as being prophetic of that. But rather it's being told about eternal destruction, about the way that all these people building up these cities and all of their earthly possessions are brought to utter ruin and destruction because they have not dared to follow the Lord their God. And therefore, they are put to death. And that is not just death. That's eternal death. That's in the place of damnation and eternal destruction. And so they did not listen, and they will pay the consequence for that. But then there is this final group, and it is finally when the church is open to all, that it tells that everyone is invited to the wedding feast. All are invited to the halls of heaven, that they should show up, come to the feast. It's ready. And so, in fact, there is that open invitation to everyone. And so the halls are filled. But the king is going through, and this is a particularly troubling part of this parable, because we hear how the king has invited everyone off the streets, and he finds this one man that is not dressed in a wedding garment. He asks him why he hasn't been dressed in a wedding garment. He's reduced to silence, and then the king throws him out. They tosses him aside into the darkness. We have to understand what he's saying that each and every one of the people invited into this wedding feast are given a wedding garment. That wedding garment is the baptismal garment. 
that each and every one of us, when we are baptized, we are given our wedding garments. And even at this wedding feast that the king is speaking of, all of them had been provided for very richly, that the king was very well aware that he invited them into something they could not be worthy of, where in fact they weren't dressed up to receive the news for. But he gave them all wedding garments. He wanted them all to be clothed in apparel that would make them worthy of this feast. But that one man decided not to. He saw that wedding garment, he received it, but he kind of tossed it to the side and said it didn't matter. And therefore, because of that, the Lord tossed him to the side. Because he decided that as the Lord's invitation wasn't important, the Lord saw that, and he saw the rejection of the feast that he was inviting him to, and therefore he let him have the consequence of that. And as we see that, we hear this final word, this piercing statement, many are invited, few are chosen. It tells us that the kingdom of heaven takes effort to pursue. We can't just take it for granted. We can't just assume because we do a few nice things through this life that we're generally good people, that it's enough. But the Lord is telling us in very clear and vivid language, lest we be mistaken, that we need to work for the kingdom of God. We need to accept that invitation, and we need to do the work to get in. Because we could be like this first group, the group that rejects the gospel in its entirety, that they hear about the good news, and they simply say, eh, that's enough for me, that I've got life figured out, I can live on my own. But we know that they come to utter ruin. Or we could be like that second group of people that are indifferent to the message. They hear it, but they ignore it. They go to their farm, they go to their hobbies, they go to their businesses, they go to their place of work. They say, I'm far too busy to be bothered by this feast as eternal as it might be. And sometimes they might have even relegated it off and said, I'll get there if I have the time. But the time never comes if we treat it that way. And then even this last person that was the one that showed up without the wedding garment, that that is a very real danger as well. Because the wedding garment can disappear in stages. That one chooses not to wear their wedding garment to the kingdom of heaven if they die in a state of sinfulness. If they die in a state where they have not pursued the Lord in his mercy and his forgiveness and tried to renew their hearts and their souls to the best of their ability. And so that is the man that was without a wedding garment. He chose not to be converted of heart. He chose not to be renewed by the gospel message. And therefore it was ineffective. So the king was enraged because he had asked him to show up in a worthy state to pursue, to ask, to follow his commandments, to do all of these things. The man couldn't be bothered. And unfortunately because of that, it yielded the consequences of him being tossed out into the darkness. But we should be aware that the kingdom of heaven, it elicits a response from us. That we need to have our wedding garment. That we need to have that baptismal garment brought unstained to the light of the glory of heaven. And that is what this gospel tells us to do. And lest we think that the kingdom of heaven is so far away, there's actually another way to understand this parable as well. Because each and every time we come to Mass... We come to that eternal wedding feast, at least in a small part. It's only a reflection of what we will see. There's some presence here. But nonetheless, it is a reflection of the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. And because we show up at this mass, because we show up here, it's very much the same invitation to come to the feast. 
but we shouldn't treat it with indifference. We shouldn't say that we've got all sorts of excuses or obligations, because many times we see what happens whenever these, these men or those that are invited to the wedding feast, whenever they start writing excuses, whenever they start to say, well, I've got things to do on my farm, I've got things to do in my business, I've got sports to go to, I've got different social obligations, I've got all sorts of different things. Mass isn't really a priority. One that says that will yield the consequences of what they are doing. Make no mistake about that. But the Lord is giving us so much in the context of Mass. That is why he gives us this parable, because he wants us to remember all of the gifts that are being given to us, the ways that we participate in eternity right here and right now, that the Mass seeks to continue to penetrate our reality and give us what we need so that we are led to the halls of heaven. And that is the third point that we are given every opportunity at salvation. We are given everything that we need, every grace, every heavenly blessing. And St. Paul reminds us of that very clearly, that no matter where we are in life, no matter how many different obligations we might have, no matter how many different sorrows or trials or tribulations come in this life, God is giving you every opportunity. He's giving you every grace. He's giving you everything that you need right at this moment to attain the kingdom of heaven that we cannot get to the end of time and say the Lord did not provide enough. He gave us everything that we need. We just simply need to be open and receptive to what he's giving to us. And therefore, that is the third thing, that the Lord wants us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, he gives us every tool, blessing, and benefit to get there. But in that is maybe our homework for this week. Because we recognize that we are being called to the glory of heaven. We are being called to that eternal feast and the eternal banquet. But we continue to have to renew our hearts and our souls. We have to look for those areas of conversion. But the question is, where am I needing conversion right now? Where am I needing renewed in my pursuit of the kingdom of God? Where is that place where I've kind of let my wedding garment slip away and I need to put it back on? Maybe it's going to the sacrament of reconciliation. Maybe it's recognizing those old grudges that need to be dealt away with. Maybe it's just simply making mass more a priority. Whatever it might be that the Lord is calling each and every one of us in an individual and particular way at this moment to pursue the kingdom of God and to do it in a more full and effective way because he wants us to partake in that eternal feast. He wants us to go to the halls of heaven, that place where all of our desires, all of our longings are fulfilled. We have to be willing to do the work, and we have to be willing to accept that invitation and the work of going through getting clothed in that wedding garment so as to receive that hall one day. Many are invited, few are chosen. The Lord is reminding us that all are invited into the kingdom of heaven, but we have to do that work. My brothers and sisters, let's be willing to do that work to pursue the kingdom of God right here and right now. The question for all of us to pray with this week, where is the Lord calling me to put my wedding garment where back? Where is he calling me to put my wedding garment on right now? Where is the Lord calling me so that I may go forward to the kingdom of God one day?